What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, let's make a deal. Yep, it looks like Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have made yet another deal. This went on a DACA. What the hell? This guy turning into a Democrat? Hello, everybody. Thursday, Thursday, September 14. Can you believe it? Here we are. It is the Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us. You are part of the program. You're part of the team. Uh, Don't forget. Uh, So we thank you for joining us on this Thursday. We're here in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, but we're there with you wherever you happen to be, all the way from uh, San Diego to Portland, Maine, and, uh, uh, you know, there we are, from uh, Hollywood, Florida to Portland, Oregon. We're uh, everywhere in the United States of America with you to talk about the news of the day. Lots of it. Yes, this big dinner at the White House last night is one of the things we want to talk about. Bernie Sanders. Yep, four years ago he stood up with single-payer legislation and nobody stood with him yesterday. Sixteen Democratic senators will tell you their names, standing up with Bernie to say, yes, let's do Medicare for all. That's the only way to go. Rand Paul trying to do the right thing and uniting people on the right and on the left to say it's time that Congress took back its powers to declare war and took it back from the president and and put it back in the Congress where it belongs, Uh, the other cowardly members of Congress would not go along with that. All of that coming up, plus some great guests for you. We can tell you all about it. But This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Thursday morning. We begin with the Mnuchin family. They're in the spotlight again, and this time it's not Stephen Mnuchin's wife, Louise Linton. You may remember a couple of weeks ago she yeah, posted that, that Instagram. She got into an Instagram battle yeah, in, in yeah. the comment section. Really, really, really ridiculous. This story really takes the cake, however. We have learned, uh, thanks to ABC News last night, Secretary Stephen Mnuchin requested use of a government jet to take him and his wife, Louise Linton, on their honeymoon in Scotland, France, and Italy earlier this summer. Okay, so this is a U.S. Air Force jet, which costs $25,000 an hour to operate. He's a low life. It's just he insane. Is a, he is a total gold digger, good-for-nothing billionaire that is in this all just for himself, and so is she. Exactly. And 
the funny thing about this is is that we only found out about this is because there's an inquiry into whether or not that trip where she the same trip where she posted the Instagram picture when they went to Louisville and Fort Knox, they, they to, used a government jet. Yeah, to see the eclipse. They thought that they were using it improperly yeah. to see the solar right. eclipse. Yeah, they were. At a they peak were. moment there. Let so. me tell you something. John Sununu got fired as chief of staff. Oh, Daddy John Sununu, the former mm-hmm. governor. Because he used an Air Force jet or helicopter, I think it was a jet, to go to New York for a stamp collection show. That seems pretty harmless in comparison, right? Yeah, right. Goodness. Well, Stephen Mnuchin, uh, still up to no good, him and his wife. Uh, let's switch over to the Congress. Senator Orrin Hatch, a Republican from Utah yesterday, announced new medical marijuana research legislation. Surprise to some. Not only did he introduce it in a bill, he often had fun. Uh, he also had fun with the wording of the bill. It's called the Marijuana Effective Drug Study Act of 2017. Here's some choice lines from the bill. Bill? Yeah, I've got it. Quote, it's high time to address research into medical ah, marijuana. Ah, yes. Ah, and quote, ah. to be blunt, we need to remove the administrative barriers preventing legitimate research into medical marijuana, which is why I've decided to roll out yes. the Meds Act. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to give it to Orrin Hatch, uh, often seen as a old stiff in Congress. And Which this may be the, the, the clear sign of him being on his way out. He also you know, writes sort of... country music, by the way. I didn't know that, really. Yeah, he does, right. Have you bought any uh, of his albums, Bill? No. Oh. Yeah, he's not a bad guy. I know him. But, you know, medical marijuana is so 20th century. <laughs> I get with it, RN. Get high on the real stuff. Forget the medical nonsense. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Hey, how about it? What do you say? Happy Thursday, Thursday, September 14. Uh, Hello, America. We are there with you, The Bill Press Show. Your morning progressive headquarters here uh, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show on Free Speech TV. Hello, hello, and Chicago, the greater Chicago area, WCPT, hello to you as well. It is a beautiful day with lots and lots to talk about the Bill Press Show. Good to have you a part of it. And don't forget, uh, don't be a couch potato don't, or don't be whatever <laughs> the equivalent is on radio. Uh, don't just sit there and listen. Get involved. Uh, send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. We want to hear from you. Uh, what you think about the news of the day? We've got some great guests in to help us through the day. Gabe De Benedetti from Politico, national political reporter for Politico, was there at the unveiling, uh, the first big book signing for Hillary Clinton this week up in New York City. Uh, he's also been following uh, the Bernie Sanders crowd around. He's got lots to talk about. Two great members of Democratic members of Congress. Uh, our good friend Dan Kildee from Michigan will be here as well in studio uh, to talk about DACA, to uh, talk about uh, also the president's uh, challenge, well, the president's challenge on DACA, but also about Rand Paul's attempts to get uh, to get rid of the uh, authorization for the use of military force, and then Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal from Washington State who was insulted on the floor of the Congress by her colleague from uh, uh, Alaska, 
uh, this year. She's here to respond to that. So a lot's coming up. Thank you for joining us. You know, um, we figured we got to start with Bernie Sanders today, right? But only one thing could eclipse that news. We'll get to that in just a minute. And that is the big dinner last night at the White House. Yes, Donald Trump, who seems to be taking his book, Art of the Deal, and making that uh, the new guidebook, if you will. Maybe this is thanks to John Kelly of the Trump administration. He uh, invited a couple of members of Congress down to the White House last night. Um, no Republicans, no, just Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, his new buddies, the two with whom he made a deal last week to provide, remember, um, emergency relief funding for Hurricane Harvey and also to lift the debt ceiling and keep the government running for the next three months, a deal that Republicans did not want. He made the deal with Nancy and Chuck That deal passed the Senate the next day and the House the very next day, putting Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell out of the picture, uh, out of the room, basically. It's a deal they didn't want. They had to go along with it. Uh, And so the president, obviously, Donald Trump says, hey, that worked. I got something done with Chuck and Nancy in one day. I haven't got anything done with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell in seven or eight months. So maybe I ought to be dancing with this team and not with my own team. Uh, So he invited the two Democratic leaders to the White House last night for dinner, where they talked about a whole range of issues, uh, among them uh, certainly DACA and the DREAMers Act. According to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, uh, they made a tentative deal with the president. This is the big news of the day. Tentative deal with President Trump that they would pass a standalone Dreamers bill to provide protection for the Dreamers in return for beefing up security on the border. They always Republicans always ask for that. Even though, by the way, Congress has already voted $1 billion this year for more border security. So according to them, there could never be enough border security. You know, it's sort of they always, uh, it's, it's, it's always their fallback position. Okay. So Chuck and Nancy said, sure, we'll give you, we'll give you some more guards or some more um, uh, uh, electronic devices or whatever you need for the border. But the big thing is, in return, we get permanent protection for the Dreamers. Uh, again, according to uh, Schumer and Pelosi, that's the deal that Donald Trump made. The White House has been a little more muted about it. They said, yes, indeed. They confirmed, yes, indeed. They did talk about DACA in addition to tax reform and infrastructure and some other issues. And yes, indeed, uh, the president did say he would go along and try to make a deal on DACA. But uh, the big thing is they insist that Donald Trump will still push for the wall, not as part of this deal, but he will still push for the wall on his own and Donald Trump has been tweeting this morning already saying, you know, uh, don't don't worry, all of my supporters, don't worry if the wall is not part of this deal. I'm not giving up on the wall. Uh, there's some construction money already there for the wall. He's trying to have it both ways again. But basically, if you read through the, the, the fine print, it, it the, what happened was Schumer, Nancy, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Donald Trump reached a deal. More money for border security, not including the wall in return for DACA protection. And the Democrats say they want to get that vote. They don't want to wait six months. They want it right away. If that happens, that's 
huge. This is the tweet from 50 minutes ago. This was just one of a series of tweets. Whole Donald t- Trump series of tweets, yeah. on Twitter, the wall in all caps, which is already under construction in the form of new renovation of old and existing fences and walls will continue to be built. Yeah, which is, by the way, nonsense. It's a it's pipe not, dream. It's not under construction. No. The, I, I've said this before. This wall, this beautiful wall with solar panels on top of it and a door, of course, so the agriculture workers can get in to pick the crops. Uh, this wall is never going to be built. But it looks like there is another deal in the making. Uh, and it's very interesting that Donald Trump, again, has decided that maybe bipartisanship is the way to go. But this his brand of bipartisanship is a different brand. His brand of bipartisanship is not Republicans in Congress and Democrats in Congress. His brand of bipartisanship is Donald Trump and Democrats. And he's just sidelining, bypassing, and you can't blame him for doing so, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. I would not be surprised that after this meeting last night with the Democrats, Donald Trump took a late-night phone call from Steve Bannon, got a bit of a talking to, remember what your base wants you to do, remember what you told your base you would do during the election, that you would build that wall. Mm-hmm. You can listen to Chuck and Nancy, but when you go out there and you, you message to the American people, when you tweet tomorrow morning, you make it clear to them that the wall is still very much a part of this. Uh, in other words, still try to have it both ways. It might have happened. He also might have told uh, Steve Bannon, you know, Steve, you're yesterday. <laughs> you're a yesterday, Steve Bannon. Yes. So until that dinner last night, the big news, certainly. And this is also huge, actually, really incredibly important. Um, the big, The big show at the Capitol yesterday in the Senate, when Bernie Sanders introduced his Medicare for All legislation. What a difference Bernie Sanders has made in this Congress. What a difference he has made in the United States of America. What a difference he has made for the Democratic Party. And what a difference he has made in his own career uh, with that spectacularly successful run for president. Bernie Sanders has introduced, he's been fighting for single-payer Medicare for All, for his entire life, okay? He's introduced this legislation as a member of Congress. He's introduced it as a senator. The last time he did so was in 2013. In 2013, he held a news conference. Nobody showed up. Not not one other senator was there. It was lonely Bernie. Yesterday, he held his news conference. He was joined by 16 Democratic senators who stood up to say, we are for Medicare for all. We are with Bernie. We stand for single payer. Here's a good senator from Vermont. The American people want to know what we're going to do. The American people want to know what we're going to do to fix a dysfunctional health care system, which costs us twice as much per person as any other country, and yet leaves 28 million people uninsured and even more Underinsured. Yeah, as Bernie pointed out in his op-ed in, in the New York Times yesterday, uh, in fact, we spend in the United States. So with Obamacare, even with Obamacare, there's still 28 million people uninsured, many, many more underinsured. So Obamacare is good, but it just doesn't go far enough. That's Bernie's point. 
And, as he pointed out in that op-ed, of the United States, we spend, under Obamacare, about $10,000 per person in this country on health care every year. Canada, France, Germany, Britain spend less than half of that, and everybody is covered. So they spend less money for more coverage than we do. It's just crazy. Uh, and Bernie Sanders says that this is the way to go. It is true. The only way to have total universal health care coverage is through a single-payer Medicare-for-all system. Uh, and uh, Bernie points out they, they said this could never be done. Well, maybe it won't happen this year, but sooner than you think. I have no doubt, none whatsoever, that this nation, sooner than people believe, will in fact pass a Medicare-for-all single-payer system and finally, finally, health care will be a right for all in the United States of America. And that is, that is where we're leading. That is the only way to go. But as Bernie also pointed out, uh, it's not going to be easy. It is still an uphill battle because the insurance companies, the medical equipment manufacturers, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are going to fight this tooth and nail. Here is the simple truth. Our opponents on this issue have the money and they have the power. And they will use that power as they have before, branding and socialized medicine and everything else. But here's the way it works. The way it works is very simple. You would just replace Obamacare with Medicare for all. Medicare, which now covers today 46 million Americans, 65 and older, are under Medicare. And 9 million younger people who have disabilities are under Medicare. So 55 million people already covered by Medicare, which, by the way, is more cost effective. The uh, administrative costs for Medicare are less than for any other major health care plan. You name it. Kaiser, Blue Cross, whatever it is. Medicare more cost-effective, get more bang for your buck under Medicare than under any private insurance plan. So what Bernie's plan will do, it's it's important to understand this, is in the very first year, the eligible age for Medicare will go from 65 down to 55. And anybody 18 or younger would automatically be enrolled. And then each year for the next four years, the Medicare eligibility will go down, like from 55, then to 45, then 35, and I think the final year is when everybody, everybody will be covered. So it phases in. Uh, the total cost is uh, estimated to be about a trillion dollars a year, uh, which means some people will pay higher taxes, just like we did for Obamacare. Uh, but it also means that your, uh, your average family, those who do have health insurance, are not going to have to pay for insurance, or not going to have to pay any co-pays, or not, not, not going to have to pay any premiums. And so um, they will be, any money they may have to pay in higher taxes would be offset by money they don't have to pay to buy insurance. So it really is a win-win. It is catching on. I think it is the winning issue for Democrats. In 2018, it shows that Democrats do stand for something. They stand for, and here's the important question. Do you believe that, we mentioned this yesterday, that health care is a right 
that health care is something that everybody who is born here or everybody who becomes an American citizen by right of being an American has health coverage, health protection for them and their, for themselves and their families like you do in Sweden, in Denmark, in Finland, in France, in Germany, in every other industrialized country? Or is health care a privilege that only those who can afford it can buy? And the more money you have, the wealthier you are, the better health protection you have. So is it something just for the elite, or is it something for everybody in this country? Democrats believe it is something for everybody. Is it, something, it is a right, and if you believe, really believe it's a right and not a privilege, the only way to make sure that everybody, in fact, has access to uh, basic health care protection is under the under Medicare for all. By the way, uh, if you have thoughts on this, and I know you, I know that you uh, do. I know that you do. Tweet us at BP Show. We're on Twitter at BP Show. We already have one comment, Bill. I don't think you'll like it. Paula says Sanders was successful at getting Trump elected. Good senator, my ass. Uh, well, I would say to you, uh, your ass. <laughs> yeah, keep them coming yeah, yeah. though at, on Twitter uh, at BP Show. We want to know what you think. The, let's remember who the losing candidate was. It was not Bernie Sanders. It was Hillary Clinton. He did not get. Don't believe Hillary's bunk. But um, yes, we do want your comments. Agree or disagree? That's fine. Uh, but I do want to read the honor roll. Right here's the honor roll of the 16 senators, Democrats who stood with Bernie Sanders yesterday. In alphabetic order, it's a very interesting list. They include, they are, rather, Tammy Baldwin, Wisconsin, Richard Blumenthal, Connecticut, Cory Booker, New Jersey, Al Franken, Minnesota, Kirsten Gillibrand, New York, Kamala Harris, California, Martin Heinrich, New Mexico, um, that's right, I think, New Mexico, yeah, Maisie Hirano, Hawaii, Pat Leahy, Vermont, Ed Markey, Massachusetts, Jeff Merkley, Oregon, Brian Schatz, Hawaii, Gene Shaheen, New Hampshire, Tom Udall, New Mexico, Elizabeth Warren, Massachusetts, and Sheldon Whitehouse, Rhode Island. And notice, among that list are several senators who are already being talked about as potential 2020 uh, candidates for the Democratic Party. They include, of course, Cory Booker, Al Franken, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Kamala Harris, anybody else on that list? I'm just looking quickly. Maybe Jeff Merkley. And certainly, yeah, Elizabeth Warren. So like six of them are already talking about running for 2020, and they see this as it's not just a just issue. It's not just a moral issue. It's not just the right issue and the right answer. They see it as politically a win-win for themselves uh, and for Democrats. It's huge that Bernie um, has has been able to amass that kind of support. And by the way, there are uh, some others who are not on board uh, and, uh, who uh, uh, prefer a different approach. Um, Sherrod Brown and Debbie Stabenow are pushing uh, what they call a buy-in for Medicare. So anybody over 55 can join Medicare. It's sort of like that public plan option, remember, we used to talk about and by the way, that's a good approach, too. That's a good alternative approach. But like Obamacare, that just doesn't go far enough. Because that, that will still leave millions and millions of Americans uncovered, unprotected. So the point is, at some point, I think Bernie is right, at some point, we are going to get for Medicare for all. That's the aspirational goal. 
And if we have to get it in stages, we'll get it in stages, but we're going to end up there. Bill, a year ago, would you have predicted that Bernie, surrounded by 16 Democratic senators, would have trotted out and had this support for Medicare for all? No way, right? Are you kidding? No freaking way. Not even if Hillary were president. No, no, nobody, nobody would have predicted that. Yeah. Uh, but it's this, it's an idea that has merit. And and you know what? Also, I would say um, a couple of years ago, I would never have predicted that another aspirational goal of 50 states recognizing marriage equality, 50 states recognizing same-sex marriage would ever happen. Look at that. That's happened. And, and everybody said, never, never, never. Oh, yeah, here we are. Uh, I would never have predicted a year or so ago that today, I forget the exact number, but we got almost, what, eight or ten states who recognize legalization of marijuana? Recreational marijuana. Recreational marijuana. Yeah, forget the Orrin Hatch and his medical marijuana, right? Recreational marijuana. And by the way, there are more and more states that are getting on every year. And in a couple of years, it's going to be all 50 states for recreational marijuana. Even those red states where they smoke a lot of pot, by the way. Uh, and so this is, this is the same thing. Don't believe people who say it can't be done. And don't believe people who say it costs too much money. Um, it, it is the right answer. Uh, and Bernie, pardon me, Bernie Sanders is leading the way um, uh, with, with help. And I might add also in the House of Representatives, and we'll talk to um, Congressman Dan Kildee and Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal about this uh, a little bit later. Uh, so John Conyers uh, has been the champion from Michigan, senior member of the Delta Democratic delegation, has been the champion for single payer in the House of Representatives for years and years. Again, Bernie Sanders worked with him when he was in the House. Uh, John Conyers has also been uh, feeling very lonely on this issue for a long time. He's been but, introducing it since the year 2003. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But not so lonely this year. There are 195 Democrats. John Conyers has 111 Democrats who have signed on as co-sponsors of his legislation. Well over half the delegation, and it's the first time there have been that many. Uh, 111. The last count, by the way, may be up uh, in the in the last couple of couple of days. Um, big news, big news in the Congress, uh, and good news in the Congress. Not so good news in the Congress yesterday. Um, Senator Rand Paul. Libertarian, of course, from uh, Kentucky, uh, a man with whom I often disagree, but once in a while agree, just like I did with his dad, uh, Ron Paul. Ron Paul yesterday uh, made another attempt to um, get rid, not get rid of, but to cancel, if you will, the authorization for the use of military force, two of them, uh, which Congress passed back in 2001, right after September 11, authorizing the war in Afghanistan and in 2002, the following year, authorizing the war in Iraq. Those two authorizations for the use of military force, which were meant to be temporary, are, are still on the books, and uh, presidents still use them and use them as a cover, as an excuse, as a blank check. Uh, they see it that way to declare war anywhere on the planet, any time that they want, for any reason that they want. Uh, President Obama used it for the war in Libya. President Obama used it to escalate the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, President Obama used it to start a new war in Syria. 
uh, Donald Trump believes he, he he's used it to strike Syria once. Uh, he, I'm sure, sees it as every authorization he needs for starting a war in North Korea if he wanted to, which is pretty damn scary. If there were ever a time to rescind the authorization of the use of military force and take the war-powering powers, war-making powers back, or war declaration powers, back to Congress where the Constitution says it belongs to Congress and only to Congress, not to the president. Yeah, the president is the one who carries out the war, but only Congress, according to the Constitution, can decide to go to war. We haven't done so, by the way, since World War II. Rand Paul is absolutely right on on this, and he had a resolution yesterday, uh, and he only got 36 votes in the Senate, which is just a disgrace. 36 votes. Um, I don't know whether any other Republicans voted with him, uh, but certainly not enough Democrats did either. Uh, the the his motion there was a motion to table his resolution and it passed tabling it 61 to 36 uh, but good for Ryan, good for Rand Paul for um, making the effort and guess what Sean Spicer is back would you believe it yeah he showed up on uh, Jimmy Kimmel last night showed up to uh, say, well, he had one regret about that famous first news conference of his uh, when he was press secretary the day after the inauguration. Did the president himself, if it was up to you, would this even have been a topic? You know, if it was up to me, I would have probably worn a different suit. Uh (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Remember, he had too big a suit on, his collar was way out, the whole thing. Uh, and he did, uh, I don't know where they took him, to Brooks Brothers or something afterwards, and they, they, they suited him up a little better after that. They took him to the mooch tail, the same tailor that the mooch uses. <laughs> that the mooch has, you think so, yes. And on the size of the crowd, well, he doesn't really get into it, but he acknowledges that that was uh, uh, not his best moment. And so right off the bat, your first ever press conference, you get in there, and it's the day after the inauguration, right? Yes. And you are charged with the job of going in front of the press and saying that the inauguration crowd was the biggest crowd, I think, ever, <laughs> biggest audience yeah, I, ever. I, I, yes, I'm aware. And, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> mm, uh, yes, he's aware of this. And Sean Spicer saying, you know, if, um, if we're not going to call if we agree that we don't call all reporters fake news, then you have to agree that some Republicans are very nice people. And I think it's a two-way street. So if we, if we don't want to lump every journalist into the same thing, then don't lump every Republican and every conservative into the same box. Okay. Da, da, da. I hate that that okay. got applause. Come yeah, on. I do too. I mean, it's such a lame statement, right? Yeah. The fact is that Donald Trump and Sean Spicer for a while did accuse every journalist of being um, in the pocket of Hillary Clinton or against Donald Trump or broadcasting fake news. So Hillary Clinton, our big book release this week, Bernie Sanders, his big release last night or yesterday of Medicare for All. Uh, And already a lot of talk, a lot of jockeying on the 2020 front. Gabe DiBenedetti from the national uh, is from Politico, rather national political from the National Enquirer. Yes, from the National Enquirer. He is all over it and uh, joins us coming up next here on the Bill Press Show. The tweet speaks for itself. Uh, I'm moving on. Period. 
Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, here we are, the Bill Press Show on Thursday, September 14. Uh, glad to have you with us. Be part of the program here as we come to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and join you everywhere in this great land of ours. Thanks today to the support of the International Association of Firefighters. Yes, you see those good men and women of the fire departments uh, on the job every day in communities across this country. Say a big thank you uh, for their being on the front lines every day to protect American families, and we thank them uh, for not only that great work, uh, but their support of uh, and sponsorship of our program under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger. Uh And you can find out uh, all the good issues that they're working on at IAFF.org. From Hillary to Bernie, it just goes on and on. Gabe Benedetti. From Politico, National Political Reporter here in studio with us. Hey, Gabe, good to see you. Good to see you, too. One of these days, 2016 will be over, Bill. Uh, you know. <laughs> no, Gabe. No. I thought it was. It's never over. Yeah. I thought it was, but. So uh, did I then Some last people yeah. want to continue, you know, to stir the flames, right? Uh, particularly one Hillary Clinton. So you went to her launch in uh, New York. Big crowd. Yeah, it was actually a pretty big crowd. The Barnes and Noble. I'm sure. I mean. If, exactly. And, yeah. you know, if she's going to get an overflow crowd anywhere, it'll be the middle of Manhattan. Uh, but, you know, she's She'll still get it all across the country. But this is think? the point that her people have been saying over and over. There's been a lot of hand wringing here, but there are still tens of millions of people who do want to hear from her. She did win uh, the popular vote. Let's not forget. But, yeah, there was an overflow crowd. I talked to some folks who were waiting in line for 19 hours to see her. Uh, you know, I had covered her first book launch. Well, her previous book launch in this <laughs> same room in Barnes and Noble in Union Square three years ago. Uh, more people showed up to this one, you know. This is a group of people that wanted to thank her. Everyone was a very loving audience. You know, it was a uh, she didn't say anything, but it was a lot of happy people. Okay, I haven't read the book. Yeah. I haven't seen the book actually. Um, but we certainly she's given a lot of interviews, and a lot of people have read the book yeah. and have ri- written reviews and written stories about the book. So I don't feel I'm stabbing in the dark here. But Politico, some maybe it was you, one of your colleagues, put out a list of twelve people that she kind of blamed for her mm-hmm. loss. Everybody from Chuck Todd to Joe Biden to Bernie Sanders to Jill Stein to James Comey to Vladimir Putin. And the list goes. And a little bit of Donald Trump in there. Uh, and Yes, a little bit. Of, that's right. A yeah. little bit of Donald Trump. Uh, one name not on the list was Hillary Clinton. Yeah. So there's been a lot of talk about this. She does say in the book, I take full responsibility. The reason that people are having a hard time with this, of course, is that she then makes the pivot to saying, but all these other things went wrong, and it's these people's fault that these things went wrong. She actually says that she'd be president for not for Bernie Sanders. And, and for, you know, the the main villain in the book is Jim Comey. But let's be clear, she does go after Bernie Sanders quite clearly. Yeah. Um, and so this is something that I've written uh, is really making a lot of Democrats pretty unhappy, not only because of the substance of her going after Bernie, but the idea that now we have to relitigate all of this for the next three months while she's on this book tour. Now, that's not to say that people necessarily want her to just shut up and go away, though there are some people who have said that explicitly to me. Uh, but there's a lot of folks saying, listen, to move the party forward here, 
we don't want to just be relitigating this. Obviously, Senator Sanders is still an extremely powerful, important leading member of the party. How is it useful to be doing this? She clearly feels like her perspective hasn't been you know, told here. Uh, I think it's interesting. Bernie Sanders wrote a book, uh, Joe, which was uh, Our Revolution. Yeah. Right. Here's what the Democrat he talks a little bit about the, about the campaign, does not dump on Hillary Clinton. And then says, here's the path forward. Here's the progressive agenda forward. Uh, apparently, Joe Biden is writing a book. We right. have it. It's not out yet, but what we've heard, it's, he says, this is how America moves forward, right. basically, again. And it's Hillary, a personal book. And a personal yeah. book. And Hillary Clinton writes a book, and it's, here are all the scores I want to settle for 2016. Yeah. Well, the, the perspective that I've heard over and over from people in her world is, we talk nonstop about the 2016 election, obviously. It still looms over all of our politics. But the one perspective that hadn't really been heard was Hillary Clinton's. So she's going back and trying to do this. From her from her, you know, her words, the reason that this, I think, is still rubbing people the wrong way is we know how her team feels about all of this, right? It's not as if uh, her – it's not as if any of this is necessarily new. We knew what a lot of this was going to say. So for her to go out there and say, you know, well, Bernie Sanders should have endorsed me sooner. He should have told his backers to – uh, to to endorse me to get more to get more strongly behind me. That's not necessarily new, but we still see that on Capitol Hill. I've been re- recently writing about this. Obviously, he is gaining support, but there is still this strain of the party that feels this way. Which which now again, you know, she has rubbed those wounds raw. Yes. I believe so. Like yesterday on the View, she again. It's sort of almost like a crying tour. I'm afraid it's, and we're going to have this until the end of the year. Here she is on the View yesterday. As soon as I lost, I turned around, I endorsed him. Yeah. I worked hard for him. Right. I was arguing with my supporters at the Denver Convention in 2008 about why they had to quit complaining that I didn't win and get out and support Barack Obama. And I didn't get that respect get from that him and yeah. his supporters. Rodney Dangerfield, I didn't get that respect. I recall, it wasn't immediately, but I do recall, Bernie endorsing Hillary. I recall they went up to New Hampshire, yep. I believe. It was in Portsmouth. It was a great event. Uh, and uh, and I know, because I was with him at a couple of stops, that Bernie Sanders went around the country uh, and support, you know, doing rallies for Hillary Clinton. Um, and I know he asked, told his voters that the choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is that this, this is a no-brainer, right? right? So... I think one of the number one, yeah. What's she talking about? And number two, why does this help the Democratic Party right now? The answer to number two is I'm not sure it does. There are a lot of folks still who say if Bernie Sanders wants to lead our party, he has to become a Democrat. He has to say sorry for not backing Hillary Clinton more. That's not obviously not going to happen anytime soon from Bernie Sanders. But uh, on the the other part of this, and 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 I should say that's not the majority view by any stretch. The other part of this, I think, is a fundamental. disagreement or or just disjoint between how Hillary Clinton thinks about politics and how Bernie Sanders does. Whenever I talk to people in his world, what they always say, as you well know, is he leads a movement. This isn't an organization where he can just tell people, and he always says this in public, I can't just snap my fingers and tell my people what to do. So he went around and tried to make the case that Hillary Clinton was better than Donald Trump. But after he had spent a year campaigning against her, uh, you know, he wasn't able to simply say to folks, Turn around and you know vote against uh, against Trump, and and she seem, seems to not be able to uh, or not be able to be willing to accept uh, that it's not it wasn't that simple that basically he should have just done more somehow. Yeah. You know, uh, so uh, Tom Perez is in uh, often here as a guest, the new chair of the DNC. Okay, 
you know, I supported Keith Ellison because uh, of Bernie. He's a Bernie guy, and I think the party needs to go in a more progressive direction. Tom won. Right after he won, he says, okay, Keith Ellison, you're my pal. You're my bud. Basically, it's going to be a co-chair almost situation. And they've been out there kicking a the butt. You know, they won a big seat in Oklahoma this year, this this week. They won one in New Hampshire. They've been working together to to build, rebuild the Democratic Party. I think that's where the party's got to be. And, you know, th- these two guys are not out there still fighting the battles of 2016. No doubt. And to Sanders' credit, every time someone asks him about this, he says, listen, we need Hillary on our side. Let's not keep talking about 2016 here. Yeah. That may not be what all of his supporters are saying necessarily. But when he's out there in public, he's not saying, now let me tell you what really happened right. in the Kansas caucuses. Yeah. Or, and by the way, I, I would have to say, I think most of Bernie Sanders supporters are with United. Absolutely, right? yes. With, with uh, you know, let's, let's get the House back. Let's get the Senate back. Let's go to White Totally. Let's not, you know, fight this whole 2016 thing. I'm not sure that most of, Ber- of Hillary's supporters, the real diehard Hillary supporters, I think, are are never going to accept Bernie. That th- th- they still believe Bernie should never have run in the first place. There are many people who still say that. Sure, I don't know if it's most, but there are still certainly people who say that. Right. Um, so, as we know, speaking about Bernie, yesterday um, he stood up to introduce Medicare for all. He did so in 2013 with not one senator alongside of him. Yesterday, 16 Democratic senators, including several who were talked about as candidate, potential candidates for 2020 were there. Right. What's this mean? Well, it's very clearly a sign that... Uh, you, oh, you watched it, you said. I, you yeah, it. I was yeah, watching yeah. it on a live stream. I couldn't make it up to the actual event, but it's very clear that this is a sign that, you know, other senators recognize that his movement has serious power. They finally understand or they finally agree to you know the idea of single payer or of Medicare for all. Um, but it's you know it's clear that Sanders is at least in terms of the health care issue and probably on a number of different policy points ascendant in terms of his influence on Capitol Hill. He's been saying that he's going to do this for a long time. He's been telling other senators he's going he's been doing this for a long time. It's been very telling that I think a lot of Democrats understand that it's politically uncomfortable for some of the folks who were up in 2018 in difficult seats to be mm-hmm. behind this. But uh, as you just said, a number of the leading potential 2020 presidential candidates were next to him. That means this idea has basically won the discussion. It's sort of an idea that finally is seeing its day. Not that it's going to happen this year. It's certainly right. Even if Democrats were in charge of the Senate this year, I would argue it probably would not happen this year. Right. Uh, because there's a, there's a, there is a, a entrenched, powerful interest who don't want it to happen. And we've seen in states where this discussion has happened, you know California well. California is dominated by Democrats. It couldn't pass there. There's still a lot of discussion happening here. Right. Uh, but so it's hugely significant, I think, that that many senators are willing to stand up and not just say, not just give it lip service, but actually co-sponsor the bill. But that's actually a very important point because what we've heard from a lot of these people, and I think you alluded to it earlier, look at someone like Sherrod Brown, who actually did not stand up on this yeah. with, with Sanders yesterday. Uh, they've been saying forever, not very publicly, but some of them have said, we're for Medicare for all. It sounds great. But now for them to finally be able to feel comfortable enough politically, feel that they have enough political cover to get up on stage with Bernie Sanders and say it, that signifies a pretty significant shift. Yeah. And again, even Sherrod Brown and Debbie Stabenow are not saying, no, this is bad. All they're saying is we want to take it kind of one step at a time. That's and right. Let's take the first step, which is lower it to 55. It's a question which, of tactics. Which is what Hillary did you know, during the campaign. That's again, right. a step... Uh, in that direction. 
So uh, cut, cutting through it, does Bernie run again? <laughs> you tell me. Uh, <laughs> there are clearly a lot of people. Oh, the, that... uh, the uh, Bernie Sanders Memorial Bill Press living room has not been booked yet for any 2020 dinner. You heard it but... here first, folks. Uh, I think... Although Carol's beef stew is always standing by. The... Um, uh, <laughs> She's got it in the freezer. She can just take it out and put that's, that's warm it up on short notice. Um, well, there are plenty of people in Bernie world that would love to see that happen. Uh, you know, listen, Bernie's going to. Uh, what do you think? I think right now. Well, listen, the election's not right now. I think that I know we shouldn't even be speculating. About there, but there's certainly fun. There's certainly people who have his ear. Let's say who say, uh, if the election were tomorrow, he would run. I would say he's going to Iowa. He's been there twice this summer. He went to New Hampshire this summer. Uh, he's gone to Ohio, to Pennsylvania, to Michigan. Lives in New Hampshire, but you're sure. Right. When he goes there, he goes for a reason, and it sends his very specific message. Yeah. Uh, and he knows that if he were to run. As I have reported, for every other Democrat, the first question, if they consider whether whether to run or not, is is Bernie running? You know, how is this going to affect the way that right. they run? Uh, so, listen, he's doing a ton of things that would suggest that he's very interested in it, and that signal to fellow Democrats that he's interested in it, and that they need to be aware of that. That's not stopping other progressives even from looking very seriously at this. Look at someone like uh, Jeff Merkley, who was his only Senate endorser in 2016. Right. Uh, Senator Merkley was in Iowa this last weekend, and he's mm-hmm. been talking about doing this as well. So there are a lot of people in this space, but clearly Senator Sanders is the most popular, the most famous, and the one who would have the leg up. Uh, I th- thought it was interesting that yesterday um, uh, Bernie Sanders had an op-ed on the, uh, in the New York Times. This morning uh, on the op-ed page of the New York Times is former Vice President Joe Biden. Remember him? Uh, yeah. yeah. He's also running. I mean, to the extent that Bernie is, Joe Biden is. There's a certain group of people that we can say Would they're you... running until they're not. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders both certainly fit that category. Right. Uh, Biden went to New Hampshire earlier this year, has has scheduled two South Carolina stops. Mm-hmm. Uh, working on a book. Working on a book. Launch school allows him to raise money to go around the country and support candidates. These are all things that you don't do if you're considering a quiet retirement. Uh, and he has uh, spoken out on DACA and on um, some other issues. I mean, he's been, yeah. Absolutely. He had a big himself. piece in The Atlantic after uh, after the violence in Charlottesville, essentially condemning the president. Uh, you know, he's making very clear that he is considering this seriously and that even if he doesn't run, he wants to have a leadership role in the party. Hillary says she's done. Never run as never be a candidate again. Do you believe her? I think that she will not run for president in 2020. I believe her in that. What I also believe is that she doesn't intend to go away either. She launched. She should not, by the way. Absolutely. She has, as she often says, 60 million people voted for her. And she's been in public life as a leading Democrat for years. She launched a new political group, has been supporting all sorts of organizations. I think one thing that we're going to see from her is an effort to be seen as more of a resistance figure. There are a lot of people in her world that want her to be speaking out more against Trump, and she didn't feel like she could be doing that during the first nine months or whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. She will likely be doing that more. And listen, she's going to be doing interviews. She's going to be doing speeches for at least the next three months for this book tour. My uh, my advice to her would be speak speak out more against Donald Trump and less against Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, <laughs> and, and we'll all be very happy. And, you know, look, I support her a thousand percent in the general. I support her over – I keep mentioning that – over Barack Obama in 2008. Yeah, I'm a huge Hillary – and by the way, God, I wish you were in the White House right now. I believe as a country we'd be a lot better off. You don't have to comment. But I do want to ask you about Joe Biden, sure. Bernie Sanders, even Elizabeth Warren. Um, uh, has Bernie 
kind of put the age issue out of the way? I mean, is it any longer an issue now? I don't know if it's he who has done this, but the reality is that the three leading Democrats, uh, and you might say four or five or six, well, I'll be roughly 70 or older. Right. Uh, and Bernie, you know, and Biden are significantly And, and Donald older. Trump is 71 now. But right? this is why I say it's not necessarily yeah. them who's doing this. Yeah. The reality is, yes, there are a lot of Democrats who want in their next nominee and in the leaders of the party, uh, young, dynamic, new, fresh faces. Uh, the reality is that these are all dynamic faces themselves. But yeah, they are all north or they all will be north of 70. Just It's just the new way that politics is these days. Um, I think what you're going to see, though, in the Democratic primary, if it does shape up to be this sprawling field that we're all expecting, a pretty big divide. There are going to be a lot of people that are young, either late 30s, maybe to mid 40s, and a lot of people who are in the 70s. But you know what? I've heard some speculation that Jerry Brown might run, and he's going to be a bit older than that. So, you know, there's... Bill, would you like to comment on that? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I I kick myself, and I have uh, told Jerry this, that I advised him not to run uh, in 2016. Uh, well, then and... we have our answer. You told Bernie to run, told Jerry Brown not to, so he will not be running. But I, but I wish Jerry... <laughs> I wish he had. I think if Jerry had run, he could have been the nominee. Uh, the, the way things were going was so wide open. But And there are enough people that still believe that about themselves that means that they might run in 2020. I don't think Jerry would, will run. Uh, he will be 80. I don't think it's not just his age. They won't because he's, sure. he's in great health. He's, he's at the top of his game in terms of uh, governing. But while we're talking about California, uh, 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 one final point on that. Sure. Now I want to get to California is we focus so much on people from Washington. And I, I think the party has always been strong, both parties, when they find somebody who's really hot and exciting who's not from Washington. Who is that in the Democratic Party? Uh, one thing that I will say is that the Democratic or is there Party, anybody? there are at least, I've counted six or seven governors who have been talked about as potential 2020 candidates. And they may be what we're talking about when we say someone who's not yeah. from Washington, uh, at least within the realm of senators, governors, and the traditional yeah, path. Got it. Yes. Democrats have never nominated someone from the West be the president, uh, to be their nominee. Uh, I would be surprised if uh, at least three or four Western governors didn't get a serious look. Mm. And that includes not just Brown, but uh, Jay Inslee from Washington, yeah. uh, Hickenlooper in Colorado, uh, and one person who I think is starting to be taken more seriously, Steve Bullock in Montana. Uh, these are people who aren't extremely well-known in Washington, but who have the chance to catch fire if people really pay attention to them. Uh, you did not include on your list, not that he's from the West, Terry McAuliffe from Virginia. Yeah, only because he's not from the West, but he's also someone who's going to be looking very seriously now, It's hard this. to say that he's not a consummate Washingtonian. Uh, that because is I that's see him, for sure. I see him at the Palm so often. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, he is a governor, not a senator. Right? Absolutely. And, a governor who's been trying to build up his progressive credentials, who's been out there trying to be uh, more of a national voice. Right. You did not mention uh, any mayors. Um, how about a mayor from the West? Maybe Los Angeles? Maybe. Uh, yeah. Eric Garcetti, obviously, looking at this very closely. He went to New Hampshire recently. But I think the mayor's question is a really good one. I mean, not from the West, but Garcetti's looking at this. Then you have uh, Mitch Landrieu, the mayor of New Orleans, has yes, been right. reportedly looking at this. I reported the other day that post uh, post reelection later this year, Bill de Blasio in New York has talked about giving a series of national speeches that would right. increase yeah. his own prominence. And you've got to put Andrew Cuomo on the list, too, as Absolutely. potentials out there. So oh, my list of potential 2020 people is well over 40 at this right. point. California. California this week is considering in the legislature, they haven't passed it yet, a measure to move the California primary 
from June to March, which means that after Iowa, New Hampshire, as always, we got to put up with that nonsense. Uh, then you have South Carolina and Nevada. That won't change. But the next one would be California. Yeah. Which means a lot of money. A whole lot of money. And a lot of delegates. Yeah. It would really turn the whole system upside down, wouldn't it? The Potentially the answer is yes. Likely the answer is yes. As you all know, in 2008, California had an early primary as well. I but know. other states moved up. Uh, and it changed a little bit, you know, obviously. Yeah, and then they went back to June. I mean, That's right. But yeah. what I uh, and one of my colleagues reported uh, over the last weekend is a lot of folks think that, that something like that would not happen this time. If California were to move up, it would significantly change the game. It would definitely benefit people who can raise a lot more money early because campaigning in California is a totally different animal. You just have to throw up as much TV time, uh, uh, TV ad time as possible, and that's extremely expensive. Uh, but it would also likely mean that you would have candidates out there just as much as they're in Iowa and New Hampshire over the next few months, over the next few years, uh, whether it's campaigning for other candidates in the 2018 gubernatorial race, whether it's meeting with donors and then tacking on some public rallies. It's a, basically a whole new ballgame if this passes and if you know no other states move up to try and match California. Right. And it would mean that California, and I say this as former Democratic chair of California, this is something I've supported and fought for a long time and complained about the fact that our primary doesn't count because usually by the time June rolls around, the nominee's already decided. Right. Right. Uh, so it would mean that California would be not just an ATM for presidential candidates. It would mean where they'd have to really fight and stump for for votes. Absolutely. Uh, and having run statewide in California, it's a big state. It's an expensive state. There's nobody happier about this, by the way, than the managers of radio and TV stations in California? That's right, except for the potential ad buyers on the Democratic side who will be doing the actual buying. Uh, uh, yeah, those people indeed. Yeah. But it could help a an Eric Garcetti or a Kamala Harris. Or uh, Tom Steyer, who is also considering a run, or any number of people who are from California or have a big presence there. Let's not forget Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, both very popular in California, very well known there yeah, already. Yeah, and Bernie really campaigned hard uh, in California. As I recall, Hillary still won, didn't she? Hillary won it, uh, but Bernie did spend a long, long time there going all around the state and, you know, TV ads all over the place. So would the nom would the who whoever wins the California primary be then automatically the nominee of the Democratic Party? I wouldn't go that far simply because there is proportional representation, proportional uh, delegate apportionment, which means basically if a number of different people are still in the race at this point and it is broken down and it, it, that no one gets above 50 percent, shall we say, the delegates will go to each person you know, based on how much vote they got. Um, but it's such a massive delegate hall that if one person were able to break away from the pack in some way, it would really be decisive. So we're still going to have Iowa. We're still going to have New Hampshire. Uh, and South Carolina and Nevada will also in some ways retain their influence. But California is going to be the big, before we the big get So game. before we – with all this talk about 2020, before we get there, of course, we do have the all-important midterm elections. Oh, right. In, yeah. yeah. How about that in 2018? Where Republicans are also um, torn, right, Aren't they about do they run – as Donald Trump Republicans, or do they run as independent Republicans who are glad to have Donald Trump their president but don't always agree with him? Right, and don't ask me about him. Yeah, right, right. right. Uh, that's a huge question for a lot of them. And in a lot of these uh, Senate seats in particular where Republicans should basically have wide open lanes to try and take out some Democrats, particularly in states that Trump won by 
dozens of points. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing really messy primaries in some of these places on the Republican side, and that's making life pretty difficult. You look at uh, the race to take on John Tester in Montana, uh, to take on Joe Donnelly in Indiana. These are turning into messy personal primaries on the Republican side. That said, whoever comes out of these primaries is still going to be in a good position to take on the Democrat. But Will Donald Trump primary some of these Republicans, do you think? What's very clear is that Steve Bannon, his former chief strategist, has yeah. has yeah. said he will look at it very closely. Right. So you might so have yes. A, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. You might have a Joe Arpaio running against a Jeff Blake. That's right. Or uh, this guy Danny Tarkanian in Nevada running against Dean Heller is really making him sweat. Yeah. Hey, Gabe, you're the best. Thanks so much for coming in. Anytime. All right. Keeping us up to date on it. And we will shift now to the Democrats in the Congress with Congressman Dan Kildee from Michigan. This coming up. is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. All right, let's make a deal. Donald Trump liked his first deal with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi so much that reportedly he's ready to make another deal on DACA. Is he still a Republican? Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? It's Thursday, September 14th. This is the Bill Press Show. So good to have you with us as we uh, come to you live from our nation's capital and our studio right here on Capitol Hill with all the news of the day, whether it's happening in Washington, around the country, around the globe. Uh, we're there. We're on top of it. We've got to cover it, and we'll tell you all about it and look forward to hearing from you what you think about it all, and you know how to do so. Uh, go on Twitter. Don't leave Twitter to Donald Trump. Don't think he owns it. You have as much right to tweet as he does. So send us your comments on Twitter, at uh, BP Show. Uh, and lots of rumblings from down the street here. We can hear it. The Capitol is so close. We can hear all the noise and commotion down there. So Congressman Dan Kildee from Michigan uh, steps in to uh, tell us all about it. Hey, Congressman. Good to see you. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Lots going on. There is a lot happening. Uh, For a change, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, For a change. And it's hard to tell how it all plays out. Um, You know, I was pleased to hear the conversation. Like I said, I was happy that... that, well, yeah. let's just call him Nancy and Chuck because yeah, Nancy that's, and Chuck, uh, that's it. But uh, that's what the, Donald uh, Trump calls that's it. That's right. <laughs> but that uh, Leader Pelosi and Senator Schumer um, are in conversation with the president. You know, it's a good thing. It's yeah. it's uh, right. It's a little right. unpredictable how it'll turn out. Exactly. A little, so, I guess, is de- that's de-emphasized little. Yeah. So let's leave it right there, and we'll All pick right. up on that and uh, talk about that 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 potential of a deal on the dreamers, and whether there might be some others down the road, too. Uh, and whatever happened to Speaker Paul Ryan? Uh, we'll get into that in just a <laughs> second with Congressman Dan Kildee. 
But first, we'll let Jamie Spenson take it over here. Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Thursday morning. We I'm going to do an all-sports full-court press this morning. Oh ESPN anchor Jamel Hill, oh, yes. who is an African-American woman, and uh, Congressman Kildee, I don't know if you know this, she's also a native of Michigan. She Go made uh, news earlier this week when she tweeted that Donald Trump made it clear in the wake of his comments on Charlottesville that he's, quote, a white supremacist. ESPN, of course, released a statement on Tuesday saying her comments crossed the line. Her comments reached the White House, in fact. Uh, Here is what Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said yesterday about Hill. Uh, And certainly something that I think is a fireable offense by ESPN. Yeah, Sarah Sanders thinks that Jamel Hill should be fired for what she tweeted. She didn't go on air. Bill and I talked yesterday. We clarified that. Uh, Jamel did issue another statement last night saying she regrets regrets the way this uh, reflected on ESPN, her employer, but that her comments reflected her personal beliefs. So good for Jamel Hill. I think that's an appropriate way to respond to this controversy. I think you can say it uh, on Twitter. I, I had a problem with her saying on the air. I mean, well, put it this way. I understand she said it on the air that ESPN could say, hey, um, right. stick to your role. Right, but right. As a t- private citizen tweeting? She clearly has the right to her opinion. Her opinion is formed by, uh, informed by a lot of evidence, and I think a lot of people would come to a similar conclusion. I can't look into Donald Trump's uh, soul to determine what drives him, but it's fair for people to come conclu- to conclusions based on his behavior. And one other thing, and this is no big surprise, if I'm looking for some institution to give me advice as to what constitutes a fireable offense, I will not be asking anyone at the White House. There you go. Not Sarah Sanders? Not Sarah Sanders. <laughs> well said. Uh, in defeating the Detroit Tigers yesterday afternoon, sorry, Congressman, oh, the oh. Cleveland Indians broke the record for the American League's longest winning streak. That's Whoa. right. The Indians won their 21st game in a row yesterday. Wow. That uh, beat the best AL streak formerly of the Oakland A's when they won 20 straight games in 2002. You may remember their story became a book and then a movie, Moneyball. Yeah, Moneyball. Right. So Cleveland tied the 1935 Cubs. They're in the National League at 21 straight. Only the 1916 New York Giants, 26 straight wins. Let's see if the Indians can get beyond that. All right. On TV and online, this is the Bill Press Show. About a Thursday, September 14, it's a good day and a good, great day to join us here on the Bill Press Show. Thanks for being with us. A great day because we uh, are blessed to have two outstanding, uh, hard-fighting members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress here with us back-to-back. Congressman Dan Kildee from Michigan, sir. Always good to see you. Good to be here. And uh, your colleague, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She's great. state of Washington. She is really great. She's yeah, making a name for herself. Freshman member who has come in and is immediately having an impact. Yeah, so she'll be coming along as well. So thank you for joining us. A uh, big treat this hour as we as we come to you on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. On Free Speech TV, coast to coast, of course, and on the great WCPT out in the Chicago area. And don't forget our podcast. Want to get a record number of uh, subscribers to our podcast this month. Every month has been going up, up, up. So uh, just go BillPressShow.com. Check out the podcast anytime during the day. So, Congressman, the president has been 
uh, tweeting this morning trying to say, no, I didn't really make a big a deal with uh, Nancy and Chuck. We did talk about DACA, and we didn't. We said we wouldn't include the wall, but I'm still going to fight for the wall. Right. I want everybody to know, even if it's not part of this deal, I'm still going to fight for it. It's like he's trying to have it both ways. How do you read it? He does try to have it both ways a lot. I think, you know, I'm I have every confidence that the way that meeting went is the way that Senator Schumer and, and uh, Leader Pelosi depicted it, and that Donald Trump woke up this morning to a barrage of blowback from the people that he considered to be his base, Breitbart and others, and had to try to nuance and tap dance a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, just looking at what he said, he basically acknowledges, yeah, we talked about these things, we came to some understandings, we still need to do something on border security, but it's interesting that he's saying border security and not if we're doing DACA, you've got to give me the wall. He did not say that. So, right. you know, we have to we have to find progress where we can find it. And, you know, I, I, I think what this is showing is that the Republicans do not have a governing majority. They don't have a philosophy that lends itself to governing in the first place. And I don't, I don't like Donald Trump very much, and I don't agree with most of the positions that he holds. Uh, but even he can see that if he's going to get something done, he's got to go to the functional majority of Congress. And that's pr- comprised mostly of Democrats and a decent number of Republicans. In fact, I just passed two amendments on the floor yesterday. All the Democrats, one of them I had 57 Republicans, the other one I had 52 or something like that. That's the functional majority of the House of Representatives. Hmm. Right. And that's what, and I think the president might be coming to that conclusion. Well, I was going to say, I think Donald Trump recognizes that. I mean, so you're in, uh, you, you and I, we're a fly on the wall, right, in the Oval Office when he's sitting there with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and Steve Mnuchin. Uh, who probably flew in on a government jet, you know, because he, even for his honeymoon, he wanted a That's government right. jet, right? Um, <laughs> and and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, and Trump is listening to them, and he hears McConnell and uh, and Ryan say, you know, we need eighteen months. We can have can't have anything shorter than eighteen months, and. And that's what the market needs and everything. And, and then Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer said, well, that's all good talk, but they, you don't have the votes for 18 months. We can give you the votes for three months right that's now. Right. And Donald Trump says, and he looks at them and he says, hey, I hung with these guys for eight months, and they didn't deliver buckus, right? They haven't. Bumpkus or whatever. So I'll, let's, let, let, this time maybe I'll dance with Chuck and Nancy. And they delivered. That's right. Now where the pressure will come is it's still that it, the fact that it is still up to Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan to decide what goes to the floor. Right. And, and this is where all the people listening to us today, all the folks who are active, their role comes in because their power is in forcing the Republican leadership to put these questions on the, on the floor. It's up to each individual member of Congress to decide what they want to do. But what can't be explained away by Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell is a complete failure to put the question to the elected representatives of the people and let them have their say. If we can win that fight, we can get a lot done. Yeah. Not as much as if we were in the majority, not as if we had the White House, but we can do big things. We can save 800,000 hardworking, thoughtful, creative people who only know America, the dreamers, from being kicked out of this country and sent some to some place 
that they don't even know. That's an important thing to do. If we haven't seen what this deal, what legislation might come out of this deal, but if there were a standalone, take the Dreamers program and make it official law of the land, in other words, make it not a presidential executive order, but pass on by. If that bill came to the floor of the House, would it pass the House? I think it would. I Dem- think it would. With enough, Demo- enough re- re- Democrats should, and then yeah. enough Republicans. We so. start with 194 Democrats, 100% on board. And just based on comments that have been made and just my own conversations with Republican members of Congress, I think it would have a fairly uh, sizable number. Right. Because the, the question is no longer an abstraction. It's a specific question. Do you want to deport these people. And yeah. of and course they all say, well, no, 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 no. What yeah. they say is it's not wrong policy. Some of them, not the Steve yeah. Kings yeah. of the yeah. world. Yeah. But many of them say it's not wrong <laughs> policy, but it shouldn't be done by executive order. It should have been done by legislation. So here's their chance. And to we're legislate. better. We are better off if it's done by no legislation. Question. And, and Barack Obama said that yes. very yes. clearly when he announced the DACA program yep. in the first place. Yeah. It was he, intended to be deferred right. action. Yeah. And it was intended to to uh, to prevent him from having to do something horrible while Congress twiddles its thumbs on the issue of immigration. Yeah, he recognized that when he when he signed that exe- signed that executive order. And if the price for achieving the Dreamers Act through an act of Congress is some additional money for border security, absent the wall, sounds like a good deal to me. Yeah, again, we got to take a look at it. It would be. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have to also deal with the cards that are on the table, which we did not. You know, we don't like the cards on the table, right? But we can't. What we cannot do uh, is paint ourselves into a corner where we're willing to sacrifice eight hundred thousand Americans. They're Americans. That's all they know is America. Uh, Based on you know some principle that is really not a principle. I mean, I think the wall is a dumb idea, and I don't think it would be the wall anyway. The wall is just a dumb idea. By the way, I don't think the wall is ever going to be built. No. And I think Donald Trump knows the wall is never going to be built. Um, Who knows? The way it's going. Maybe the Mexicans will get up someday and say, you know what? We'll we'll go ahead and build this wall. If it'll keep Donald Trump away from us, we're putting our own wall up. Good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> but, but the real Thank point you, is Frost. that it's a uh, right. That it's a um, you know it's a toss to his base to continue to talk yeah. about this yeah. wall. Yeah, but that's what he was doing with his tweets this morning. Yeah, yeah. But border security is a real thing. We can figure out a way to do border security. I, I, I don't want to have an army on the southern border. Um, I but, do have to ask you this question, though. I mean, how much – you always hear this. Oh, but first we've got to deal with border security. First we've got – we have more damn agents at the border now than we've ever had. Got a lot. This year, I don't have to tell you, Congress has already voted a billion dollars for more border for security. Sure. So how much more border security can we have? It, right? You know, I, it's – it's one of the things that I think it's sort of turned on us, the fact that maybe some of us were a little reluctant to criticize President Obama when he was deserving of some criticism because he was he was certainly not a softy when it came to some of the issues regarding immigration. No, I think he like doubled the number of border yeah. agents. So, yeah. I mean, the yeah. narrative is one that um, that now somehow 
has people concluding that we have this massive unguarded border uh, mm. over which people can just hop without yeah, any which fear. Yeah, which is just not true. It's just not the case. Yeah, and right. Now, on the northern border, there are probably, I mean, I know something about the northern border and, and with Canada. and You've probably walked across it. Swam across it. Swam across. But even that is, uh, it's fairly secure. I talk to our, our folks quite often. So we're, you know, do right. we need to get it right? For sure. Um, does that mean a wall? The wall is a trophy for Donald Trump is really what right. it is. Yeah. Congressman Dan Kildee with us from the 5th District of Michigan, the great city of Flint, uh, which we talked, we've talked a, right. a lot about. Uh, yesterday, something uh, very uh, interesting happened in the United States Senate. Um, four years ago, Bernie Sanders stood up and said, Medicare for all is the way to go. Uh, and he looked around and there was nobody standing with him. Yesterday, right. he looked around and there were 16 Democratic senators standing alongside of him. What's going on here? I think the country's catching up. I think the lessons of the last few years are getting people to understand this fundamental principle in healthcare, And that is we all pay for one another's health care whether we know it or we like it one way or another. And so the argument, the debate over ACA and over the Republican proposals, I think <laughs> has gotten a lot of traction um, for single payer because it becomes this sort of obvious conclusion that people draw when trying to figure out how to craft a system that maximizes access to care, maximizes affordability, um, has the best health outcomes, and minimizes the self-selection that naturally goes into a healthcare system that is not mandatory. Uh, and so I think we're, I think we're getting there. Yeah. Uh, um, it's kind of interesting. But, Some of the Republican pushback that I heard uh, is that, oh, wait a minute, you, this would be terrible because Medicare is going to be bankrupt in 17 years. Isn't that kind of the point? Mm -hmm. If we had so many more people, even if we just started with early entry into Medicare, with younger mm -hmm. people being able to buy into Medicare, that not only is good in terms of providing an alternative insurance, I don't like the insurance model, but insur a, a, a source of payment, but it also strengthens Medicare's program generally by having younger, healthier people who draw less. Sure, so absolutely. Cross-subsidizing those that obviously need more care. Uh, you know, whether it happens this year or not, I'm not sure even uh, if Democrats were in control of the Senate this year that you could pass a Bernie Sanders bill. But I think yesterday, Jamie, Bernie made a, um, made the point that, um, as you, you indicate, we're on our way and we're going to get there Sooner than you think, here yeah. says Bernie. I have no doubt, none whatsoever, that this nation, sooner than people believe, will in fact pass a Medicare for all, single-payer system, and finally, finally, <laughs> health care will be a right for all in the United States of America. That's, that's the key question, isn't it? Do you consider health care a right or a privilege? You know, it's so interesting. We do consider it a right. Otherwise, why did we create Medicare in the first place? It's a fundamental right. You pay in over a lifetime. You become to a point where you're eligible. The only thing I think we're saying when we talk about Medicare for all is your eligibility ought to start a lot earlier than when you're in your retirement years. But it, the notion that 
that there's a reason to have Social Security, for that matter, or Medicare, is based on a fundamental right that we are saying to society that we ought to guarantee access to some basic floor of decency, a roof over their head, plenty of food to eat, mm-hmm. health care when they need it. So in the House of Representatives, this is in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, Senator John, uh, Congressman John Conyers, uh, your colleague from yeah. Michigan, uh, has been introducing Medicare for all single payers since 2003. Um, this year's last count that I saw is he has 111 uh, Democrats who are co-sponsors of his legislation. Are you one of them? I'm not. For a, And I'll explain. And I've been in conversation with John. One of the things that that his bill, 676, does, uh, and I think this is unintended, but or maybe not fully understood, it eliminates the Indian Health Service. I've been one of the oh, big really? advocates for what? better, more fairness for um, for American Indians. I've asked John when he reintroduces the legislation if he would work with me on that, um, so that we can excise that hmm. particular provision. And I'm going to use every ounce of leverage I have to make sure I can. <laughs> yeah, uh, it seems strange. That, well, I that, think where does that come from? Here's where it comes from, I believe. And of course, this is the same language that's been introduced now for maybe six Congresses, right? Yeah. I think it comes from a belief that has now been debunked by our experience that having an insurance card does not, for some populations, ensure that they get health care. They actually have to have access to services. And there are certain populations in rural communities, for example, um, and among our uh, tribal nations where quality health care is simply not available to them. Oh, yeah. And so if it's 120 miles away where the nearest clinic is and you have uh, a health insurance card, it's nice to have it, but it doesn't give you the kind of care you need. So we need to Hmm. not only provide insurance or the, the, the source of payment, but we have to acknowledge that the marketplace all by itself is not so magic that it solves all problems. And there are some places where we have to intrude into the market to create the capacity to provide the care or the service. Indian uh, Health Service is one of those really important programs that right. uh, huh. I, I'm just a real strong advocate for. Um, well, knowing the good uh, good Congressman Conyers uh, pretty well, and he's been in the studio several times here too, uh, not as often as you have, I might add, but at any rate, uh, I hope that's something you guys can work out. We're I working think he on would it. be uh, open yeah. to that too. Because I'm, I'm uh, he's got a big heart, and uh, I'm all I'm a Medicare for all guy. I just want to get it right. Right, get make sure that all the details are right. You've also been working in another uh, area, which is um, uh, very, very important because it, it it impacts our ability to get a lot of other things done, and that is the drawing of congressional districts, yes. or what is known as gerrymandering. Right. Yeah. Uh, which today Republicans have perfected by by taking over state legislatures and drawing districts that are red as you could be. What can we do about it? Well, I think we we have, I think a whole series of things we should do. One, I think in states we need referendum, or referenda, to create nonpartisan districting commissions that take this out of the pendulum swing of partisan politics, which California has done. California's by the way, done after a long time, Arizona, some other states as well. Um, that's the ideal. Uh, we have a, a couple of cases. One, um, the Wisconsin case, which is uh, going to the Supreme Court. Some of the signals we're getting 
uh, from the court just recently uh, in terms of the way they dealt with the Texas case is giving us a little bit of pause that they might not be willing to look at gerrymandering on the basis of partisan gerrymandering alone. Mm -hmm. I think I'm not an attorney. But that doesn't mean I don't have my opinions about what the Constitution says, right? Yeah, yeah. It's our document, right? Uh, It intends that we have some form of equal representation. And when we have gerrymandering, which ends up basically being a sort of a carnival mirror image of the body politic, it emphasizes some aspects, de-emphasizes others, that distorts the rights of individuals in the political system. It magnifies the, the uh, rights of some. It de-emphasizes yeah. the rights of others. That's not what our Constitution uh, intends. And I, and I think there's a legitimate legal argument that says gerrymandering for partisan purposes alone contradicts the intention of the Constitution, and, and the court should see it that way. If they don't, we have to continue our efforts to overturn this on a state-by-state basis with, uh, with referendum or legislation. Right. Uh, but it is a state by state basis. This is not Congress is not going to draw the lines and nope. Congress can't dictate to each state how they draw the lines either. Right. right? But no, and, and, you but know, it and, really does impact, for example, oh, on any issue, any piece of legislation that you have or any issue that people care about. If they really want to see some action, I mean, some uh, in, in, in Congress. Right. Uh, if you have these distorted political districts, there's no hope of getting. If you just took Michigan and Ohio. Uh, is two examples of states that everyone knows are basically purple states. They can go either way. We're kind of a blue state, but once in mm-hmm. a while we swing the other way. Ohio's the same way, right? Yeah. Uh, there are nine Democrats representing those two states in Congress. There are 21 Republicans representing those two states in Congress. And if you aggregated the votes in those places, you'd see we're at about par for, con- for congressional right. votes. Right. That's yeah. some- something's just not right. Uh, it's just not right. Michigan's legislature, Michigan, again, a 50-50 state. Our state Senate is 38 members, 27 Republicans, 11 Democrats. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's such a distortion. Right. And the, Yeah. And the reason they're able to get there, again, repeating ourselves, is not because um, that's what the population reflects a population it reflects that they've drawn the districts they have masterfully you got to give them credit i mean and it's now of course the use of technology that has made it even easier for them to really precisely carve districts that benefit them and hurt us we just went through hurricane harvey and hurricane irma uh the new york times yesterday the lead story was that the lesson from both those hurricanes a lot of destruction a lot of loss of life but um that we've learned to respond to hurricanes better than we have in the past right? at every level. Do you agree? I, I think what we saw, um, certainly in Florida, with the advance notice that we had. Um, They're doing a better job of pre- predicting the the, doing, you know, the path of these better things, Better job of predicting. I mean, and the, the strength. What happened in Texas was, was terrible, uh, you know, but the loss of life, you know, is, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's sad. But the lessons since Katrina... Uh, hopefully are being learned. You know, unfortunately, the lessons that are not being learned is that um, this isn't all just sort of coincidence or accident. Uh, climate Amen. is having yeah. an impact. Um, I was disappointed. I had a, an amendment that would have prevented U.S. <laughs> dollars from supporting uh, coal-fired uh, energy facilities from being built with uh, international development funds. Got shot down. I mean, we're, we're thinking way too short-term about all of this. 
Anybody who's thinking about building new coal-fired power plants, I mean, talking Makes about no sense. that and not even 20th century, that's like 19th century. And especially right? in the, in the yeah. developing world, we're not doing folks a favor by no. giving them 19th century technology in a 21st century economy. You know, the sunk cost is one of the ways that they push back against us using renewables. It's sunk cost in all the uh, carbon-based systems that we have. When you have 300 million people in India without electrification, we got a chance to kind of get it right for them. We yeah, ought to be right. really saying, look, on the front end, let's invest in, in renewable and sustainable systems that will give them the advantage that they should have and have the additional effect of protecting the planet from self-destruction. Uh, uh, but, you know, at the White House um, Monday, Tom Bossert, the president's uh, uh, Homeland Security Advisor, I was there at the briefing, and, and he was asked about the very the connection. Hey, you got Harvey and then Irma and then Jose, and you know you got Kate, Kat, whatever Katia, the the one from oh, the oh. one that hit uh, Mexico. I forget. Oh yeah, the, the hurricane. The one that Trump didn't acknowledge, the one along with tr- the earthquake. Of right. course, right. Um, and they just dance all around this idea. Here's Jim Acosta from CNN asking Bossert, "Don't you see a connection here?" Does the thought occur to you, geez, you know, maybe maybe there is something to this this climate change thing and its connection to powerful hurricanes? Uh, uh, Where you just separate the two and say, boy, these are a lot of big hurricanes coming our way. Well, I don't know if I say either, but I do note that there's a cyclical nature of a lot of these hurricane seasons, and uh, I think uh, the scientists for their forecast on this particular one, uh, they were dead on that this would be a stronger and more powerful hurricane season with slightly more than average large storms making landfall in the United States. So we'll have to do a larger trend analysis at a later date. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, a BS answer, right? I mean, yeah, so they've, sure. gone, they've gone from fake news to fake storms. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean but, but it's just, they're just, they choose to be ignorant. And they always say, don't ask me about climate change. I'm focusing on rescuing people yeah, right now. That's right. all we have to think about. Yeah, yeah, well, like, yeah we're not saying don't rescue the people. We're saying, Scott Pruitt called it insensitive to talk about climate change. Insensitive. Yeah. Right? I'm sorry to be so insensitive this morning, Congressman, by asking it's you that question. just your way, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I can't let you go without asking about, uh, every time I hear people talk about infrastructure and the need to rebuild our systems, people mention Flint as an example of where our infrastructure really broke down. It did. Of course, there was a human error there, too. For sure. A human element. But right. uh, we haven't heard anything about Donald Trump doesn't even talk about infrastructure I can't. Anymore. I can't get, I mean, even on Flint, I can't get the White House to return a call. Uh, we've been asking for a point person even on Flint. But it is the case in point that shows that we have allowed our infrastructure to atrophy to the point that, Flint was one bad decision away from catastrophe. And, of course, what here, here's the, the sad lesson. Flint is not an anomaly. No. It's a yeah. warning. Right. There are so many communities out there that are one moment, one catastrophe, one event, one failure away because we've allowed these older places especially to deteriorate to the point that they um, – they're teetering on the brink of of, uh, of another disaster. The future of America's cities and towns is, for many places, is actually quite bleak unless we, unless we get serious. Yeah, and there's no bill. There's nothing moving. There's well, a little talk, but very little. I mean, the president, in even in his speech to Congress, you know, laid it out as if it was a, a priority. You know, yeah, there's yeah. going to be health care, taxes, and right. infrastructure. 
Start with infrastructure. Do it now. This tax argument, who knows where that's going to go. Healthcare, they're making another run, of course, (laughs) which is, I think, just uh, optics. Um, Let's do infrastructure. You know, if he wants to do a deal with, quote, Nancy and Chuck, his uh, his new BFFs, it's (laughs) infrastructure. All right, let's do a deal with Nancy and Chuck and Dan. And That's we'll get, right. <laughs> we'll get it all done. Hey, Congressman, so good to see you. Thank Thanks you. for coming in. Uh, yes, and uh, we are going to jump from Michigan to the state of Washington. Congresswoman Camilla Jayapal joining us next. Uh, Congressman, you can hand the seat over to your colleague. All right. All right. Thanks Thank for coming in. We'll be right back. Plenty of time later on to have those discussions, and I know that we will because climate change clearly is a big topic for the media, but we will continue to sort of focus our attention on the folks who need us right now. All right, it's a big topic for the world, but I do want to uh, move on. To- Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Here we go now on this Thursday, September 14. We're wrapping up here on the Bill Press Show, coming to you live again from Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., just down the street from the United States Capitol. We're brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the good men and women of the Teamsters Union all across this country under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa. We all live better because of their good work, and uh, we salute them, thank them for their support of the program. And you can find out more about the work of the Teamsters at their website, teamster.org. As we were discussing with uh, Congressman Dan Kildee, busy days in the Congress today. And uh, after last week's deal on uh, the debt ceiling and keeping the government running and providing relief for the Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma, uh, now the possibility of another deal in the works over the Dreamers. Uh, right in the middle of all of it, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal from the state of Washington. Congresswoman, great to see you. Great to see you, Bill. Thanks so much for uh, for coming back in. So, you know, uh, the president the, wanted to have dinner with a couple of friends last night. So he said, oh, I have two of my newest friends. Come Chuck on and Nancy. Down. <laughs> Chuck and Nancy. The Chuck and Nancy show. Uh, it's so funny. And... Yeah. Um, Thank you very much, Nancy. Chuck, appreciate it very much. <laughs> After uh, dinner, uh, Chuck and Nancy said uh, they talked about a lot of things, but they uh, came to a rough agreement, no details, but a rough, roughly talked about a possible deal where uh, the president would support the Dreamers Act in return for some more border security, which didn't include the wall. He said, so this morning, the president is out tweeting saying, oh, I'm still going to go for the wall. I'm still going to, on my own, right? I'm not giving up on the wall, kind of reassuring his base, but not denying that he at least talked about the possibility of dreamers with a little more money for border security. What do you think of that deal? Well, I just think we have to wait and see what happens. This, you know, everything that's unfolding is sort of happening fast, isn't it? How can you how can you predict what's going to happen? How could you predict that Don, Chuck, and Nancy would be best buddies now? 
Um, but I will say that, uh, you know, it's positive, obviously, that he is ready to really push and use his influence for a DREAM Act. Um, it sounds like uh, Nancy and Chuck were both very clear that it had to be the DREAM Act, mm-hmm. um, which is an important distinction from any other bill that's not as permanent or doesn't include as much people, as many people. Um, and so let's see. I mean, it, it was very unclear what we're talking about as far as border security. And I know for immigrant rights advocates, for the progressive community more broadly, we do not want to see increased interior enforcement, increased detention beds. You know, yeah. that that would not be OK. So and that's actually, frankly, just as distasteful as a border wall to the dreamers as well. So. I think we're going to have to wait and see. But, you know, certainly if he sticks to it and it sounds like he's not disavowing that that was sort of what was said, then um, it's a positive step. Now, the next question is, what's Paul Ryan going to do? Because Paul Ryan has not embraced the deal. It doesn't no, sound well, like. No, I, and I'm sure Donald Trump didn't talk to him about it ahead of time. That's the thing. And Paul Ryan is the Speaker of the House. And so he's got to bring the bill forward. Or he's, you know, I do think that Trump saying what he said could give some freedom to some Republicans to sign on to the DREAM Act and the discharge petition to bring the DREAM Act to the floor. So it is possible for Trump to use his leverage and really go around Paul Ryan. But he's got a I'm sure he's also thinking about some of the other things he wants Ryan and McConnell to do. So uh, it's a really interesting time. And, uh, you know, and I think that the the movement in the streets is going to be very important to keep the pressure on for Mm -hmm. a clean dream act, not to not to trade dreamers for some other horrible enforcement that would hurt the dreamers parents. This is a Bill Press show Uh, breaking news update. uh Just uh, about two or three minutes ago, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have issued a joint statement in response to Donald Trump's tweets. (laughs) They say that his tweets are, quote, not uh, inconsistent with the agreement reached last night. Yeah. Said there was no final deal. We agreed the president would support enshrining DACA protections Mm -hmm. into law and encourage the House and Senate to act. What remains to be negotiated are the details of border security with a mutual goal of fina- finalizing right. all details as soon as possible. That's, right. I mean, yeah. and that's essentially what I was saying. It, it to, to me, it sounds like the deal was Trump said, yes, I want to do this. He also probably said, I'm not going to go for a board. You know, I won't push for the border wall. But the question as part of this as deal. part of this deal. Right. But the question really is, what's the border security? Sure. And, you know, um, I think. Yeah. That's to remains to be seen. Right. He uh, also just told uh, pool reporters. I want to add he, this as well. He, Donald Trump. Donald Trump okay. did just tell pool reporters as he was boarding Air Force One en route to Florida. Quote: The wall will come later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he's realized there's that, not going to be a wall. Um, we we can't now trade the wall, however, for more detention beds. You know, no. we incarcerate yeah. more people in the detention system than any other country in the world, and so. I had an amendment on the floor to an appropriations bill last week or the week before that would have put a moratorium on any expansion or any new detention facilities. And actually, we held the caucus very strongly. Um, hmm. We only lost about five Democrats, I think. Unfortunately, we didn't pick up any Republicans. But yeah. I think that's really part of the argument that we're making. And I will be introducing at the beginning of October a comprehensive detention reform bill that we've been working with advocates for months uh, on that bill. So. Um, I, I read this morning that in terms of this border security, Congress has already voted this year a billion dollars for more border security. So, I mean, 
You're right to raise the question, what are you talking about with border security? Well, what more it, are they talking about? It, right? I mean, this is the thing. You know, I have asked uh, our Homeland Security staff and committee staff to put together um, a, a diagram of how much we've spent over the last decade on border security. And not just border security, oh, but interior enforcement. Yeah, and, and what did it go for? And what are we doing? Right. Yeah. yeah and then also, question. what is the corresponding... Uh, line for arrivals, because I actually don't think that those two things are tied together. It's not like you put more border security money in and you stop people from coming because people are coming for very important reasons like fleeing persecution or death or violence. Um, And so it's not like just putting more border security there stops people from coming. There's some effect, of course, but the underlying problem is that, you know, are the economics and the political situations in a number of these places. So um, if you, you mentioned Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi, you know, it's interesting what Donald Trump maybe unwittingly has done. You know, it wasn't so long ago that people were writing Nancy Pelosi off, right? Yeah. Saying she's just not effective anymore. She's not, you can't get anything done. She's in the minority. And now it's almost like he has brought her back. Well, right? she... Look, she is one smart lady, and she has been around for a long time. She knows the procedures of the House, Um, and I, you know, I've got to say, like, just watching her up close, she does know how to leverage politics. She is a progressive herself, um, but keeping a, you know, a somewhat unwieldy caucus together uh, sometimes has her you know, much more in the centrist camp. But at heart, I think I I heard some stories about how she worked the last Dream Act when she was speaker to get it passed and um, personally went and lobbied everybody. So, you know, there are issues that are very near and dear to her heart. And she's certainly um, there are things that perhaps we could, you know, say we would have preferred were done differently in this whole thing. But but I think there's no question to me that she's very committed to getting this passed. And yeah. um, well, I'm a big friend and a huge fan. And she, um, uh, there's nobody who knows the legislative process better or is better at it. That's my and that's more, my feeling. And, and more and, effective. There would be no yeah. look. Obamacare is not perfect, and I've written a book about that. But but there would not be Obamacare. And thank God, Obamacare is a lot better than what we used to have. Right? Yeah. We just have to go beyond that. I think we'll get into that in just a minute. Yeah. But but there would be no Obamacare without Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, I mean, that really is her, you know, her big legacy, I think, in, in getting that through. And and she doesn't and many, get credit many for the other Dream Act, issues, but she, she the did. Dream Act, I mean, yep. she got the Dream Act through the House. It was the Senate that was not able to get it through. And uh, I've just seen her kind of laser focus on, yes, we're going to get this done. And I think it's I think it's very important. So I do have to ask you, you have made a little news this week on a couple of occasions. Um uh, one, let's start with uh, your colleague, Senator, Congressman Don Don, isn't it? Not Don Dan. Young. Don mm-hmm. Young from um, Alaska, who um, wasn't happy with some comments you made on the floor of the House, uh, and uh, he goes off um, in a very condescending manner. Here he is. You know, I, I rarely do this, but I'm deeply disappointed in my good lady from Washington doesn't know damn thing what she's talking about. And I really am disturbed. You may not know me, young lady, 
but I'm deeply disturbed. I am deep. I am still talking. Words. The gentleman has already impugned my motives by saying that I don't know a damn thing about what I'm talking about. I didn't say He's damn. Now you called said me. It. He's now called me young lady. And Mr. Chairman, I ask that he take down his words. Gentleman will suspend. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Did you see that coming? I did but, not see that coming. Well, good, you know, this but, was, good for you for standing up right away. Well, I mean, young I, lady, I mean, how condescending. And, and, you, and yeah. you don't know a damn yeah. thing about what you're talking about. I, I, you know, when I was in the state Senate, the president of the Senate would actually gavel down somebody if they made yeah. inappropriate yeah. comments. And yeah. so I, I was they did waiting. in the House, too. Well, no, apparently, I've now found out, but apparently members police themselves. So mm. th- unless your comments are about the president or a member of the Senate who is not there to defend themselves, um, it's a policing of members by members. So that's why the president of the Senate or, you know, pro tem chairman at, at mm-hmm. the time w- did not gavel him down. And so but I also was just sort of waiting to see. I was sort of in shock. Like, is this really happening? Is he really saying these things? And and, you know, first the dam, then he actually there was a piece in between where he um, he says somebody else must must have written your statement. You couldn't have possibly written your statement and understand that this was an amendment that he offered. Let's talk about the substance here. Yeah, I'm sorry. The amendment that he offered which would have allowed for predatory hunting practices on federal lands. And he was arguing that it was a state's rights issue. And I said, it's not a state's rights issue because it's federal lands. And people from all over the country come to enjoy those federal lands in Alaska. And therefore, the federal government has the right to to uh, prohibit these predatory, really cruel and predatory hunting practices on federal lands. Alaska can do whatever they want on their state lands, but this is federal lands. And that's what he was referring to as nonsense. I, I actually didn't say anything incendiary. I said essentially what I just said. Yeah. And so um, I will tell you, though, that clip has gotten, I think we're up over 800,000 well, views was, on I that I mean, clip. offensive. It's condescending. It's it was yeah. just obnoxious, the whole thing. Yeah. As, he uh, did I apologize, think. which I, uh, you know, I accepted his apology. He, he moved for unanimous consent to strike the words from the record. I think it's important that people in Congress understand that each one of us was elected. I was elected by 750,000 people. I said to him, just like you were, um, somebody later said, well, actually, he's probably elected by fewer because Alaska, sure, I think, is a sure. much. Yeah. But um, but, you know, this this idea that you can be condescending to women, to people of color is just because it's always been that way. It doesn't have to be that and way. Yeah, and, and I don't think we have to accept with me, it. So therefore, you don't know what the hell you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. And crazy. I think sometimes my, people are just intimidated when they see a strong woman. My, my, my. Uh, I've never met the man. My whole impression of Donald Young, Don Young is one day, um, a month or so ago, a couple of months, I was walking through the Capitol and um, I just stopped because as I passed his office, I passed the door, I looked up and there was this huge bear skin uh-huh. When you walked in, you walked right into this huge bear skin on the wall, and I thought, "Holy hell!" And of course, it was Don Young's yeah. office. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he did publicly apologize. I asked that he do that. He did that, and I said to him, "Look, we should sit down and get to know each other because." Um, and so I'll take it as an opportunity to work with him on something. I don't know what it will be, but something down the road. So it was sort of like from the frying pan into the fire that you went from the floor of the Congress. To C-SPAN. Actually, C-SPAN was in the morning at 7.30 or some oh, the same day? hour. The same day? Oh, my God. In between oh, I got it the yes. floor oh. and, well, in between C-SPAN in the morning and the floor at night, the Judiciary Committee Dems walked out 
of committee on uh, because of a, a resolution that David Cicilline and I introduced, a, a resolution of inquiry around investigating Trump and, and mm. Sessions. And um, Goodlatte cut off all debate and moved it to a vote without allowing any debate, which is unheard of. And so those three <laughs> things all happened on the same day. day. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Washington. Yes. Yeah, okay. So let's go back to the uh, morning. I've done that show many times on C-SPAN. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I usually get hammered there, but I was, I've never been. Because it's, what's funny on C-SPAN is they have the Republican line, the Democratic yeah. line, and the Independent line. Right. And uh, nobody pays any attention to that. All the right-wingers call any phone number so they can get through, <laughs> right? So they'll say, now let's go to the Democratic line. And I think, oh, God, finally some relief. And then it's another right-winger <laughs> taking me on. But at any rate, I've been hammered there, but never as badly as you were. Here is the caller on C-SPAN. They, these illegal aliens that they brought in here illegal on their own is, is costing $530 billion a year for the benefits they get, and plus $23 billion child-owned income credit they're claiming on their income tax. And some of them, the kids are even living in Mexico. They've never been in there and not even kin to them. All right, man. All these illegal aliens, all it's the John money from Florida, I believe. Is that who it was? Yeah. John. I think they said his uh, name was John. from Florida. I must admit, Congresswoman, you kept your cool. John, it sounds like you're in a lot of economic pain, and that that is true across the country. And there's no question that we as a country need to deal with economic inequality across the country and the fact that we need to make sure we have good paying jobs for everyone. I am committed to that, and I'll tell you that right here looking into, I can't see your face, but looking into your eyes, if, if you will. But I'll tell you, to blame immigrants is completely wrong. It is something that happens at a time of economic distress, right? Yeah. People look for somebody to blame. Yeah. And uh, for years and years, it's been... It's been immigrants. immigrants. Immigrants have been a great wedge issue for this country for a very long time. And the conservative you know, extreme conservative right wing is very good at blaming immigrants for everything and tying everything back to immigrants. But, you know, so much of what he said was not true. And right after I said that, I went on to sort of say, actually, there are lots of studies that show that immigrants put in more than they take. They're not eligible for public benefits. That's a myth that they are somehow taking all these public benefits. They're not eligible for public benefits. Um, and ultimately, immigrants have always contributed much more, you know, have helped to build this country and always will. Um, and so I think, you know, what I have found, I've done this work on immigration for 20 years now, and um, I've been on a lot of conservative talk shows. I'm constantly facing off against uh, these right-wing, you know, conservative anti-immigrant groups um, and I'm not always so kind to them because they have an agenda that they're pushing. That's different. Oh, yeah. But with an individual, I do think we should recognize what's driving some of what they say. Mm -hmm. And and I did hear a lot of economic pain in his message. He went on to talk about his kids who weren't able to get jobs. And, and I turned the conversation back around to if you really want to blame somebody, blame the big corporations who are not providing jobs that pay enough these days and that are not paying their fair share because that's really where the blame should go. And um, the reality is immigrants are not the ones to blame. So I've, I've found that that works over and over again. If you identify something that you truly believe with, it's not fake. I really felt what he was feeling. Um, and you acknowledge that and then you move to making your arguments because it creates a lot more space for somebody to listen to you if they feel 
that you've listened to them. So. Do you think there's any hope? We did talk about the possibility of a DACA deal and whatever. Is But uh, I think all of us would acknowledge, I, I mean, I believe that we should uh, act unilaterally or, or independently, I guess, and get the Dreamers Act in yeah. In, in, into law. Yeah. But still, that doesn't resolve all the no. problems with we immigration. We have a big, comprehensive immigration I was going to say, reform. is there any hope for a comprehensive approach to immigration? Well, I think there is. But, you know, it's been challenging for a very long time because immigration has been used as a wedge issue. And when you polarize people around that wedge issue, it then makes it very difficult to have political space to move. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there's political space to move. If you look at the history of elections, anti-immigrant candidates who have run solely on anti-immigrant platforms have not won. Um, and so I'm actually working now. Maybe except for Donald Trump. Yeah, that's true. That's no, that's that's a good point. <laughs> I was thinking about congressional. You know, I, mean, a lot I couldn't of our, believe when he started his campaign. I know. I on know. That, on that very point, and I thought, I coming from California. You know, this is like a 25-year-old no, argument, No, you're right. You've right? just thrown my argument right out. It used to be true, and since yeah, this presidential yeah. election, I think it's not true. But, you know, I am working with a group of Republicans, new members. We all came in together, and um, we all want to deal with comprehensive immigration reform. I mean, these folks know that their districts depend on immigrant labor, and they want mm-hmm. a fix not only for economics but because their kids go to school with undocumented immigrants, you know. Their um, their sons and daughters sometimes are marrying uh, folks who have immigration issues. And so they do understand both from a personal and an economic perspective that we need to fix it and, and that the rhetoric is wrong. We started uh, talking about an unusual meeting at the White House uh, yesterday, a uh, dinner meeting between uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and the president. Uh, there was another unusual meeting yesterday during the day uh, with Republican Senator Tim Scott. Mm-hmm. who uh, met with the president. It's a meeting he requested sometime back right after the president's comment on, comments on Charleston, yeah. where he said there was mm-hmm. uh, Charlottesville, I'm sorry, some very nice people among those uh, KKK members. Uh, and at the time, Senator Tim Scott said the president lacked moral authority if he couldn't just condemn yeah. uh, the white supremacists. Yesterday they met. It was interesting. Uh, Tim Scott's comments to CBS News after uh, that that meeting. I went in there not expecting to change the president's mind. But he's he obviously say, reflected on what yeah. he has said, uh, on his intentions and the perception of those comments. He was certainly very clear that the perception that he received on his comments was not exactly what he intended with those comments. It's an interesting comment because. Yeah, the perception of his comments was pretty bad, but his comments his were pretty comments bad. His comments were bad. <laughs> I, I noticed the same thing. And, you know, one thing I think we'll see, I don't think it's happened yet in the last 24 hours, but the House and the Senate passed a resolution on Charlottesville um, and condemning not both sides, but condemning right. the anti, um, you know, the KKK folks and the and the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis. And it passed both the House and the Senate. So now it's on the president's desk. That was a choice. I mean, they could have done it without needing the president mm-hmm. to sign it, but they specifically uh, structured it in a way that the president would have to sign it because they felt it was important for the president to make a statement about whether he really stands by what's in that resolution. And so, and that's, again, bipartisan. It was unanimous in in the Senate. And 
I think that this is an important moment to see whether he signs that. I can't imagine that he won't, but then again, who knows? Uh, yesterday, actually, Press Secretary uh, Sarah Sanders said that he would Great. sign it, yeah. uh, and I think that's the he he has to sign he it. has to sign it. Right. He has to sign it. But then the question can't. is, what else does he do? You right. know, what else does he say? Uh, he can't take back his remarks. He should can't take, take back. back his he remarks, but he, he just doesn't. And, and you know, we way. introduced a resolution to censure him around those remarks. Mm-hmm. Jerry Nadler, Bonnie Watson, Coleman, and I. Uh, so very quickly, I just came back from the uh, Northwest, as in Oregon, uh, didn't get as far as your great state of Washington. So, what's the situation with the wildfires there? It's been it's it's a it's a it is an emergency. You know, I know people don't think about it that way, but California, Oregon, and Washington, we are burning up, and um, this has been an issue. Even when I was in the state legislature, we need more money for wildfire management and and relief. Um, we need more structures in place. Uh, but ultimately, we have to deal with the issue of climate change. I mean, this is you cannot have all these hurricanes and natural disasters, wildfires, um, drought and say that this has nothing to do with the fact that we are burning up the earth and we need to deal with it by reining in the fossil fuel companies and, and moving to a renewable energy economy. And I'm proud to have introduced the 100 by 50 bill in the House, Jeff Merkley in, uh, in the mm-hmm. Senate. Uh, Raul Grijalva, Jared Polis, others. Uh, let's get to 100% renewable energy by 2050 and start to take on this issue of climate. That's the issue, 100% by 2050. Yeah. You know, which is an achievable goal. I think it is an it. achievable yeah, goal. Absolutely. I really do. Uh, you're making such an impact, Congresswoman. Thank you so much for uh, taking time out of a very busy schedule to come Thank see you, us. Bill. Thanks I for all the good it. work you're doing. Uh, and that's the rest of the day is yours, folks. Enjoy it. Come back and see this us tomorrow. Igor Volsky will be here. Show.